Well, let's continue to worship, shall we, on this Father's Day by turning in our Bibles to Revelation 19, verses 11 to 21. If you need a copy of God's Word, just get the attention of one of the ushers, and they'll be certain to get one into your hands. Revelation chapter 19. It's Father's Day, and what better topic to be talking about than a battle? I couldn't have picked it any better. And not just any battle, but the battle. The battle of Armageddon as we started into last week. The Battle of Armageddon, referring to the final event of the Great Tribulation and the final event of the age. And just to give you a little bit of a re review on the timeline, though I don't have it on screen for you, just want to make sure that you know where we're at. So imagine over here is the cross of Christ. That's when the church age began. We are still in the church age. All right? Jesus began it. Previous to that, Israelites of old, Old Testament times. But church age began with the cross. We're still in the church age. And there's going to come a day when the church age will end with the great tribulation. You tracking with me so far? That seven-year period of time, or at least some perfect period of time, at the end of the church age, when God begins to judge both the earth and the people on it for their sinfulness and rejection of him. And then at the end of that great tribulation is the return of Christ in the battle of Armageddon. Ushering in, once that is completed, ushering in the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Jesus here on earth, a time of prosperity, time of goodness, and all of that. And then the new heavens and the new earth with the current earth burned up and gone. That's the timeline and that's where we're at. Battle of Armageddon, the last event of the Great Tribulation and the last event of the age. A battle, of course, between those who oppose God and those who follow God. That's the battle between those who oppose God and those who follow him. And for all of the specificity that we have in the scriptures regarding the Battle of Armageddon, for, for all of the detail that we see, for how much it's talked about in the course of the Bible, which I hope to show you more of this week, most people think of it as a fairy tale. They just do. Uh, they, they think it's the product of an overactive imagination, either on the Apostle John's part or on our part uh, or, or both and, or they think it's the product of just a dysfunctional obsession with all things war. That's what so many, most people in church world and out think of the Battle of Armageddon. Or at most, they think it's an allegory, you know, like uh, Lord of the Rings, or, or maybe just the source for something like Lord of the Rings. Just another strange prophecy in a strange book that has little to no bearing on our life. None of which is true. Not one bit. Not if the Bible is true. Not if the word of God that you hold in your hand is true. Because the battle of Armageddon is so well attested in God's word and so vividly described, it's the furthest thing from a fairy tale or allegory. True in every respect and every detail. And one of the reasons we're told about it is to increase our reverence and our awe and our devotion 
to the one who fights it, the one who fights the battle of Armageddon. It's one of the main reasons that we have it written out for us. Sure, it's there to reaffirm our hope and solidify our confidence that in the end, Jesus will win. We'll get to that next week for sure, for sure. But in the meantime, and all throughout, all included, it's there to increase our reverence and awe and devotion. That's how it bears on our life. Because real as it is, information alone isn't the point. You've heard me say this over and over again in our study of Revelation. Some people get so obsessed with it and all about the details and so on. It's just information alone. That's not the point. That's not the point of anything in God's Word. Knowledge alone isn't the point. Sanctification is. Perseverance is. Awe of God is. Holding fast is. So you follow along with me. We're going to reread this passage because I want you to have it firmly in mind as we look at the other scriptures that are connected to it in the Bible. And you can make those connections on your own. Revelation 19, verses 11 to 21. The Apostle John is writing, he says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, as we just got through singing, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. I'll start explaining all of these things next week. It's all I can do to hold myself back. Verse 13, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, a place of prominence, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great." And I saw the beast, it's the Antichrist, and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. That's the battle of Armageddon. Armageddon referring to the epic nature and epic scope of the battle itself. First mentioned in Revelation 16 as we saw last week. And along with that, we found that it's a real battle. 
in real places, with real people all over the world, the world against the church. It's real. Second, it starts with the return of Christ. And so get yourself back into that timeline. We're over here at the end, the very, very end of the Great Tribulation, at which point Jesus will descend from heaven. He will raise the saints and give us all glorified bodies. He will gather us in the air and then proceed to earth to make war on sinners. All in the twinkling of an eye, the Bible tells us. He's coming to raise and coming to judge in one fell swoop. It starts with the return of Christ. And third, we found that it's the ultimate day of the Lord in Scripture. The ultimate day, the day of the Lord referring to the time of God's judgment on those who reject Him. And while there have been several historical fulfillments of such days, the time of Christ's return and the battle of Armageddon is the ultimate fulfillment. You'll find in the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, you'll find the day of the Lord referred to, but not every single time is it referring to the ultimate day of the Lord, the battle of Armageddon. Sometimes it's a day of the Lord that was fulfilled shortly thereafter in the near term. But there are other times where it didn't fit the near term or was nothing along the lines of the particular prophecy and along with some other factors which we'll see indicates that it's yet to come. Day of the Lord. We looked at it last week in 1 Thessalonians 5, another New Testament scripture, 2 Thessalonians 2, and then Amos 5 and Zephaniah 1, all referring to the day of the Lord with descriptions to match what we just read in Revelation 19. And before we leave this point, there's one more that I'd like to show you. I feel like I'd be remiss if I left this one out. It's Isaiah chapter 13, verses 6 to 12. And if you want to turn there on your own, you'll get a head start. We're going to turn to some other Isaiah passages, but I have it on the screen for you here in just a few minutes. Isaiah 13, verses 6 to 12. Isaiah... If you can kind of fix your mind on this, and this isn't just for free, you need to understand this. Another portion of the timeline of redemptive history, if you will. Isaiah is speaking around 725 B.C. So if this is the cross, we're 725 years before the time of Jesus, when Jesus was born. And Isaiah, in the earlier part of chapter 13 here, is talking about the coming judgment of ancient Babylon, still on this side of the cross. He's, he's talking about the coming judgment of ancient Babylon after they overthrow Israel in 586 B.C. So Isaiah is prophesying 725 B.C. He's saying, Israel, you're going to get it. And, and it's going to come in the form of an overthrow by a nation yet to arise called Babylon. And then after that, that nation, Babylon, is going to be overthrown and judged by the Persians. They're going to get their own day of the Lord. There's a day of the Lord for the Israelites. There's a day of the Lord for the Babylonians. It's coming. It's coming. A near-term fulfillment. But in talking about that particular day of the Lord that actually happened in 539 B.C., the Babylonians were overthrown by the Persians, just like Isaiah had said a couple of hundred years earlier. 
in talking about that particular day, Isaiah expands the scope to a worldwide perspective and he refers to cosmic disturbances just like those that the Apostle John saw in the book of Revelation. Both of which indicate that he's not just speaking of an ancient day of the Lord for ancient Babylon, but a future one for the whole world. You follow along and see if you pick it up. Isaiah 13, verse 6. Wail, he says, for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty, Almighty God, it will come. In other words, it's certain. You can count on it. It's the furthest thing from a fairy tale. It will come. Verse 7, therefore all hands will be feeble and every human heart will melt. Every heart. He just expanded the scope to a worldwide basis. Every human heart will melt. Verse 8, they will be dismayed, distraught. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another, shocked. Their faces will be aflame, which could mean anything from anger to literal burning. Verse 9, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. And catch this. For the stars of the heavens, cosmic disturbances, the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. Cosmic disturbances just like we find in Revelation 6. In John's glimpse of the end where he says the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. Same description as Isaiah laid out. Verse 11, back to Isaiah. I will punish the world for its evil, the world, and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare people. I will make people more rare than fine gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir, an ancient source that was hard to come by. The point being, Isaiah isn't just speaking about God's judgment of ancient Babylon, but his judgment of the entire world, just like the other passages that we saw last week. Five scriptures with some of the same words, same ideas, and same scope as Revelation. Leading to the conclusion that the battle of Armageddon is the ultimate day of the Lord in both the New and Old Testament. In fact, this is the next point I want to commend to you. It's prophesied extensively in the Old Testament. It's prophesied extensively in the Old Testament. You see, in addition to the day of the Lord prophecies, there are others that are just as explicit because of the similarities of their 
descriptions, among other things. And I want to show you some of them, not only to impress them on your heart, not only to make you aware of them, because it's not just about information, but I, I want to commend them to you and show them to you to reinforce the connectedness of the Bible, the unity of the Bible, the fact that it was inspired by God who knew the end from the ancient beginning and moved men to write accordingly. I hope your awe of God's word increases with these prophecies, and I hope your awe of God himself increases with these prophecies. Having given them decades and centuries and even millennia ago. How good is God? How great is God to do so? How amazing is he to preserve it for us in the scriptures in front of us so that we can like have our minds blown every time we see some of these connections between the things of old and the things ahead. So good. I hope that increases your awe of God's word and God himself, starting with prophecies about him, like Deuteronomy 32, verses 35 to 43. 1,400 years before Christ. Talk about ancient. 1,400 years before Christ, God is speaking here in Deuteronomy 32, and he says of his enemies, his enemies, vengeance is mine and recompense, payback. It's the whole idea that we see repeated throughout the Bible. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay Vengeance is mine, he says, in recompense for the day of their calamity, his enemies. The day of their calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone and there is none remaining bond or free. And that is going to be no more true than at the end of the great tribulation when the church has endured so much and has died, been martyred for their faith, and those who are still alive are at the end of their rope and they can be confident that God will vindicate them and have compassion on them when he sees that their power is all but gone. How good is God? It's meant to reassure us. It's meant to increase our awe of him. Not to mention his word. As I live forever, God says, if I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and will repay those who hate me. I will, listen to this, I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh. And then there's a commentary from Moses, for he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. How many times do we see that lived out and fulfilled in the Old Testament where God saw his children who cried out to them and he defeats their enemies. Sometimes through miraculous means, many times through natural means. So much so that the arrows and the swords are drunk with blood. We see it over and over again in the Old Testament. We even see it on, limited, on a limited basis in the New Testament. Like with Ananias and Sapphira. After they lied in the offering that they gave to the church in Acts chapter 5. And they were struck dead on the spot. Or at least three hours apart or so from each other. We can't say 
that Deuteronomy 32 is a prophecy of Armageddon per se, Armageddon specifically, but it sure does fit, doesn't it? It sure does describe how God will be when he comes because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. The same, righteous and just, the same, taking vengeance on those who oppose him, the same. Is he loving? Is he loving? Absolutely, absolutely. Is he, is he patient with us, long-suffering? No doubt. But there will be a day when it ends, that patience. Prophesied extensively in the Old Testament as well as the New. And not just in passages like Deuteronomy 32, but passages like Isaiah chapter 2, verses 10 to 19. And if you haven't yet turned there, I do want you to turn to see this one in your own Bible. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 10 to 19. You'll find it right about the middle of your Bible. Right after Psalms and Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, little books there. If you get to Jeremiah and Ezekiel, you've gone just a little bit too far. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 10 to 19. In addition to the Old Testament Day of the Lord passages, there are at least three others that speak of the Day of the Lord. In fact, I would say probably five or six. We don't have time for all of them. and I'll let you use your cross-references and find them. And as you read God's Word, pick up on, on them as you go in the days to come. But I want to show three of them to you. And this is the first. Isaiah chapter 2, starting in verse 10. You follow along. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day, the day of his judgment. Verse 12, for the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up and it shall be brought low against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, and against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains, and against all the uplifted hills. Think kings and kingdoms established on the highest hills back in the ancient Near East. Verse 15, against every high tower and against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish and against all the beautiful craft. All of these references to earthly power structures in Isaiah's day. And they're all going to fall. Verse 17, And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low. He repeats himself. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And the idols shall utterly pass away, like the image or idol of the Antichrist that is prophesied in Revelation 13, whatever that's going to be, whether something real or something intangible. The idols shall utterly pass away. And people, verse 19, shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord, just like he started in the passage, from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. Terrify the earth. Terrify the world. Indicating that it's a prophecy about the worldwide battle of Armageddon. 
with some of the same language found in Revelation 6.15 that foreshadows the end. Everyone hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, just like says in Isaiah, calling to the mountains and rocks, John says, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Or as Isaiah says it in verse 19, the terror of the Lord. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Same language, talking about the same event. And one of the purposes for such a prophecy, one of them, in addition to reaffirming our quiet confidence that God will be victorious, that he will make all wrongs right, one of the other purposes for such a prophecy is to arrest our attention and put the fear of God in us. It is. To snap us out of our slumber and keep us from living in denial. Thinking that our opposition or rejection of God has no consequences. Oh, if that's you, having walked in here this morning, I pray that you're listening. I pray that you're hearing what the Lord has to say. This is meant to snap us out of our slumber so that we don't think that we can just live however we want with no consequences whatsoever. There are consequences. Isaiah chapter 2 is clear. The battle is coming. Isaiah 13 is clear. The battle is coming. When haughty men will be humbled and the Lord will be exalted and every knee will bow as we just sang about and even worse. Wake up and make the connection. Look up and stand in awe. Awe of God's power. Awe of God's righteousness. Awe of God's justice. Because there will be a day. The second scripture is Isaiah chapter 34, verses 1 to 4. I want you to see that one as well. Flip over several pages, 30 chapters or so, to Isaiah chapter 34. Verses 1 to 4. It's another battle of, another prophecy about the battle of Armageddon. Because once again, the descriptions are similar. There's a worldwide scope, and it hasn't been fulfilled. Three indicators here. Just before we get to the text, here. Three indicators that an Old Testament prophecy of judgment speaks of the battle of Armageddon. Not all of them do. Not all of them. Three indicators that indeed they are speaking about the same event. A, the descriptions are similar. The descriptions are similar. B, there's a worldwide scope. And C, the prophecy hasn't been fulfilled. Similar descriptions, worldwide scope, and the prophecy hasn't been fulfilled. That's how you differentiate as you read the Bible and study the Bible on your own, that's how you differentiate between a prophetic judgment intended for God's people of old and a prophetic judgment yet to come. You follow along. Verse 1, Isaiah 34. Draw near, O nations, to hear and give attention, O peoples. Already we see that there's a worldwide scope. There's more. Let the earth hear and all that fills it, the world, and all that comes from it. For the Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their host. 
He has devoted them to destruction, has given them over for slaughter. Similar description. Their slain shall be cast out, and the stench of their corpses shall rise. The mountains shall flow with their blood. And then he sees even further into the future, as we often find in Old Testament prophecies, where they combine, they compress, if you will, the events of the future as they see them, kind of like as you're driving toward the mountains of Colorado across Nebraska that never seems to end. It just looks like one mountain range. But as you get closer to Colorado, you begin to see that there's a mountain range right in front of you, followed by another mountain range 50 miles away and another one beyond that. And these are prophets who are prophesying so far from old. They're looking at the mountain ranges a long way off and oftentimes compress the prophecies. That's what's going on here between verses 1 to 3 and verse 4. Because in verse 4, he begins to look even further to the future when heaven and earth itself will pass away. He says, all the host of heaven shall rot away. The heavenly bodies, they'll rot away. And... The skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. Just like John says in Revelation 6, 13 that I quoted a few minutes ago. But that's after the events of verses 1 to 3. That's after the battle of Armageddon. A thousand years after, according to Revelation 20, first is judgment, first is wrath, first is destruction and bloodshed upon bloodshed. Same description as Revelation 19, same worldwide scope, and same yet-to-be-fulfilled perspective. yet to come. But I hope against hope that that doesn't keep you from believe, believing it. Just because the battle of Armageddon, just because the bloodshed, just because the carnage of all that's prophesied, just because it hasn't happened, just because you don't have a TikTok video, just because your favorite guru hasn't talked to you about it or said something about it or you read it somewhere, just because that's the case doesn't mean it's not coming. It's certain. The battle of Armageddon is no different than all the other prophecies in the Bible, dozens and dozens and dozens of which have already been fulfilled, which ought to increase our confidence, our certainty that it's coming. Just as certain as the day after tomorrow is coming. It's extensively prophesied, it's abundantly clear, and it's every bit as certain as Tuesday. If I polled every single one of you in the worship center and said, do you think that Tuesday is going to come? And do, you, do you think that, that like that day that the sun is going to shine and rise on that day? Every single one of you would say, yes, I, I, I'm certain that it is. The Bible tells us, God tells us in the scriptures that as long as the earth remains, the sun will rise and the sun will set. It's a prophecy. And we're pretty certain of that prophecy because the sun rose and set yesterday and we experienced it. 
and the day before, and we experienced it in the day before, and the day before, and the day before. But just because we haven't experienced the battle of Armageddon with all of its carnage and all of the judgment and the wrath of God doesn't mean that it's any less true because God has already experienced it knowing the end from the beginning and he's told us. It's every bit as certain it's going to be a day of battle and judgment, a day to right all wrongs, a day to end the worst tribulation the world has ever seen. And loved one, if you're on the wrong side, if you're on the wrong side of that battle, if you fail to believe or fail to persevere, you're doomed. Because at that point, it's too late. It's too late to switch sides when Jesus returns and begins to fight. Make sure you're on the right side of history. Starting now. The history of redemption that includes the future of redemption. Make sure you're on the right side right now. It's the second prophecy that's extensively about the battle of Armageddon. And then last, the third one I want to show you is Zephaniah 3, verses 6 to 8. Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 6 to 8. Zephaniah is prophesying about 100 years after Isaiah. Call it the late 600s B.C. And he records God as saying, I have cut off nations. Their battlements are in ruins. I have laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate without a man, without an inhabitant sounds a lot like the fall of Babylon in Revelation 18, doesn't it? The, the fall of the sinful culture. Nobody on the streets anymore. Everything laid desolate. Verse 7, I said, Surely you will fear me. You will accept my correction. Then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. It was a prophecy 600 years before the, the Lord Jesus ever showed up himself about what's going to go down at near the very end of the great tribulation in the rise and the fall of Babylon when, when Babylon and the culture, the worldwide culture of sin and debauchery and, and, and persecution is going to be laid flat. And God is saying 600 years before Christ, I would have thought, you would have thought, that you would fear me because of that, because of what's coming, because of the certainty. You would have thought that you would accept the correction along the way and you would have turned from your evil and wicked ways. Then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. Look at the next phrase. But all the more they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. What a commentary on our culture these days. All the more they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. Does that not fit? Despite all of the warnings along the way, despite the correction along the way, despite the wake-up calls, 
the vast majority are all the more eager to make all their deeds corrupt. Therefore, verse 8, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I will rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, his jealousy for his glory, his jealousy for our worship, his jealousy for our devotion, his jealousy for our love, having been and continuing to be the creator and sustainer of the entire world, the creator of you and I personally, the one who fabricates every single thing down to the smallest nano atom to the biggest structure of the entire universe. He is jealous for his glory because he's worthy of it. Make no mistake. He says, I'm going to gather the nations to pour out on them all my anger, for in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. It's Revelation 19 to a T. And if that doesn't put the fear of God in you, nothing will. And you'll find yourself on the receiving end of that anger. Oh, loved one, turn to God now. Repent now. Fear the Lord now. That's the purpose of all of this. That's the purpose of, of these prophecies about the battle of Armageddon. Far from a bunch of fairy tales to entertain, they're repeated over and over and over again, Old Testament and New, that we might follow and fear the one who fights the battle. Follow and fear and live for him. Holding fast until the day he returns to deliver us from evil, just like we pray once and for all. Let's do that now. Father, you are hallowed in heaven. And we hallow your name even now. Thy kingdom come, God. Thy will be done on earth. On earth as it is in heaven, we know not what we pray sometimes. But God, when you bring it, will you deliver us from evil? We're certain that you will by the truth of your word. And we're so thankful for it. And I pray that you would awaken our hearts to these things. From the connectedness and clarity of your word to the extent of your wrath and the severity of your judgment. Oh God, wake us up. Arrest our souls. Bring us up short. Stir our hearts, God, to know you more, to fear you more, and to follow you more all of our days. We love you for it. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Let's worship the Lord.